1: It's great to have all of you here for Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Starting the week off, it's Monday, and I don't know about you, Jim Galloway, but I am ready to talk politics. You know, it's kind of like a, a, ref, a refresher, a, a post-Memorial Day refresher, yeah. restart. Yeah, exactly. That's Jim Galloway. He's the lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You know you read him every Wednesday and Sunday in the Dead Tree edition of the paper. And he also oversees the Political Insider blog at AJC.com. Right? Got it okay? Absolutely. Great. if you're watching us on Facebook Live, which you can do by going to GPB News on Facebook, you will see that uh, across the table is uh, Terry Annowitz. She's a Democrat from Smyrna, Democratic State Representative from Smyrna. Your Terry, your entire district is Cobb County. Is that right?
2: That's right. My entire district is Cobb County. I start in the Cumberland area. I go. I, my district actually includes SunTrust Park, the Atlanta United Training Facility. It's very sporty. I also wow. have Dobbins, so I have. Parts of Smyrna, Marietta, and Cumberland.
1: Wow, I have never been to SunTrust Park. <gasps> we
2: need to what? fix that.
1: I just don't watch baseball. You don't but have. To I'd watch go baseball. to the Atlanta United training facility in a heartbeat. I'm a soccer guy myself. It's
2: a very, very neat facility.
1: <laughs> Brian Robinson is with us. He's a Republican strategist, uh, formerly the communications director for uh, former Governor uh, Nathan Deal. Hey, Brian, how are you? I am fantastic. Wearing a, you're wearing, a t- you are in a t-shirt, which is perfectly fine. It's radio, it's radio, yeah. But it's a state of Georgia with uh, what appears to be a, a, American flag. No,
3: no the lowly. Sunny Purdue flag. Yeah, is the state flag. Oh, is that the Sunny Purdue? Okay.
4: And it's, This is a pretty cool shirt. I mean, I must say, I mean, in all honesty, I, I love this shirt. Okay. Everybody who loves Georgia should have one of these.
1: Kyle Hayes is also with us. He joins us from NPR in Washington because he works up there. Uh, Kyle, I assume that you don't wear a t-shirt in your work because you work for a big think tank up there. (laughs) (laughs)
5: <laughs> no, I wish they let us wear T-shirts, but not today. <laughs> Kyle, Kyle, you should work for yourself, yeah. because this <laughs>
1: is the number one perk. Kyle oversees, he's a founder and oversees Peach Pod, which, if you have not heard it yet, is really a podcast you ought to listen to, because he may be based in Washington, but he's a Georgia Van and uh, uh, does a podcast that talks about Georgia politics. I should have asked you before the show, and I didn't, what's your most recent podcast, Kyle. Who, who's the subject of it?
5: Um, so last week, we actually had the AJC's Tamar Hallerman on the podcast to talk about the new trade deal, USMCA, and how it has split Georgia's agricultural community. And we took a look at some other issues important in rural Georgia.
1: Okay. They can download PeachPod or subscribe to it, rather, anywhere they get their podcast. just like you can subscribe to the Political Rewind podcast. So thanks for being with us from Washington, Kyle.
5: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: Um, Let's start with some breaking news. Jim Galloway, uh, there's been a lot of tension, as we know, between Democrats on on the Hill in the House who have been trying to continue to investigate President Trump on a wide range of issues. The tensest negotiations probably have been between uh, Gerald Nadler, the chair of the House Judiciary Committee, and uh, DOJ and the White House, Nadler demanding a lot of documents, Uh, uh, testimony of White House officials uh, and the like. And it's gotten very nasty, but we've had a breakthrough today. It's been hinted at for a few days, but news broke late this morning that the Justice Department has agreed to provide Congress with key evidence collected by uh, Robert Mueller that could shed light on possible obstruction of justice and abuse of power by President Trump, according to the Judiciary Committee. Um, Nadler... They've tried to work amicably. They are going to be in court tomorrow uh, to try to force uh, DOJ's hand on uh, providing some information, some documents. But they've already said that if they get the documents voluntarily, they will... uh, uh, pause their efforts to hold the attorney general bar in contempt. Right. It's not. It's not clear whether
3: they're going to d- do the same for former White House attorney uh, uh, M- Don, Don M- McGahn. Right. Uh, yeah. This is. This is. And, and and from what I understand, this is this is paperwork only. Uh, we still have. Uh, uh, we uh, Nadler is still trying to get uh, Bob Mueller right. in front of him. Right. And and McGahn and and. Uh, uh, to that end, I mean, and, and we can get into this more more in, in a bit, but you know, Democrats are still looking for that
1: narrator, yeah, to tell the story of the of the Mueller report that's a really good point. The story needs to be told. Let me I want to bring everybody else in on this, but one of the reasons I wanted to start with that uh, is is to make the point Jim Friday, you and I spent about forty minutes on the show talking to uh, representative Doug Collins, Congressman Doug Collins, and during our conversation. He said that he thought that there could be a breakthrough in this. There was no reason for the hostility. And, and so Collins has now released a statement responding to the news today in which he says the Justice Department has yet again offered accommodations to House Democrats. I'm glad Chairman Nadler, for the first time in months, has finally met them at the negotiating table. He complained on Friday that Nadler kept moving the uh, goal goal line on uh, what he needed from the right. White House and, or and, from and DOJ,
3: also that he was that he was that he was uh, making it impossible to negotiate by holding this sort of damocles of of uh, criminal contempt over over Barr's head.
1: All right, Brian. So uh, maybe a slight warming of relations. It, the question becomes whether there's documentation in there that's going to um, make the president more vulnerable. We don't know.
4: I think we have a pretty good feeling of what's in there. I, I, I don't think that there's going to be a lot that's uncovered, which is why I think DOJ and the Trump administration finally came to the table. But what we've seen is the proper process playing out. There's been a negotiation going on, hysterics and accusations on the side of the Democratic House, and some stonewalling, perhaps, and, and, and slow footing, you might say, on the Trump administration's part. But you, know, you mentioned Doug Collins, and he's quoted in The New York Times today, saying that uh, today's good-faith provision for the administration further debunks claims that the White House is stonewalling Congress. He's right. They've been negotiating, and this is the, the proper outcome.
1: Uh, Kyle, you want to weigh in?
5: Yeah, I think, you know, this also, I think, is to the benefit of the Democrats a little bit, because they've been slow to jump on the impeachment bandwagon, and so to the extent that the Trump administration is complying in some sense, or they can say, look, we've negotiated and we've made some progress, that may put a little pressure off from their left on people who want impeachment to start now, because one argument for impeachment has been that if the administration continues to stonewall Congress, impeachment is a way around that by forcing the administration's hand. Some progress may beat off that pressure a
1: little bit. You know, Terry, that's a really good point that Kyle makes. I mean, we've, we've won Wondered whether uh, the stonewalling, and there has been some stonewalling uh, by the White House particularly, whether this was inflaming the desire for impeachment on the part of some Democrats. And there's even been suggestions that the president is provoking them to try to impeach him. This may change that a bit.
2: I think that that's right. And I, I like the point that was made earlier about we're lacking a clear narrative of this report. And I think that if, com- you know, if co- th- these two sides coming together, if this is getting us to a point where we have increased understanding of what the Mueller report is, I and mean, I think you could read both volumes and have no concept of what narrative may or may not be there. But I think if this gets us to a greater understanding of what is contained there, if we have more cohesion and understanding among Democrats, I think that this will make it much easier to move forward with how we decide to approach the issue of impeachment.
4: I think both sides have an interest in seeing this move slowly. And I'm taking the legal aspect of it, the congressional authority aspect out of it, and just going to the politics of it. Wiser heads in the House Democratic Caucus, including the Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, know that impeachment is politically perilous. That was a really hard uh, (laughs) group of peas there. Uh, They know that they can get in a lot of trouble. They can step on a landmine going in that direction. And as much as Trump knows that they impeach him, it could cause a backlash in his, his favor. He and the administration don't want to be one of only less than like three presidents who've been, ever been impeached. They don't want that. So nobody wants that process to move forward. So going slow helps everybody on both sides.
1: Uh, Jim, I want to pick up, uh, as Terry did, and you're talking about the narrative and the fact Democrats haven't found one. Um, And that becomes more and more important because of the fact that we assume most Americans have not read the Mueller
3: report. Yeah, it's, it's not narrative. It's the narrator. They have not found a voice. That tells the story well, okay. of this thing, just like much like you know, much like Sam Sam Irvin became the the narrator of of the Watergate hearings, and that's why that's why it's it's kind of interesting that they have settled on John Dean, mm-hmm. even as we're even as we're yeah, talking, testifying. he is testifying before
1: the House Judiciary Committee to kind of start that storytelling. So, with that in mind, y- you remind me that last night a uh, Georgia congressman. Rob Woodall, Republican from up there in the 7th district who's not seeking re-election and we're going to talk more about his uh the race to replace him uh, throughout the months ahead. But he he made an appearance on Casey Hunt's show on MSNBC. And um she asked him whether he'd read the Mueller report and this is just a part of that exchange.
2: Have you read the Mueller report? Info? I have not. Why
0: not? The, I, I said when we started this conversation that I trusted uh, Mr. Mueller. He took a lot of slings and arrows throughout this process. But every U.S. attorney I knew said this is a man of great integrity. Yeah. He's going to lead this, so why not read this investigation. Well, I, I have a concern when you put the entire uh, power of the United States Justice Department behind anything, uh, you, can, you can achieve an agenda. You can drive a, drive a message. All of those... Uh, in- so you
2: think the Mueller report was just driving an agenda? That well, there's no. nothing in there that's worth... Cons- like five- Figuring
0: well, out. you 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 tell me what that uh, investigation is that, uh, that 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 Mueller said I didn't get a chance to do. He had a chance to do it all. He had right, the right, But I'm saying like we're talking
2: about the report, right? Okay, so fine. I'm not. We're not talking about going beyond the Mueller report. I'm saying why not read? I mean, there's ten things in there on obstruction where he said, hey, the president may have obstructed justice here. Congress, he seemed to say you need to figure that out. I mean, why not? Well,
0: he didn't say to Congress you need to figure that uh, that out, right? Obstruction is not a political issue. Obstruction is a criminal issue. But he uh,
2: issue. he did say to Congress he was like. I I can't make a decision about this because I'm not allowed to constitutionally indict a sitting president of the United States. So Congress, over to you.
0: That's right. Congress, over to you if you want to pursue impeachment proceedings, which you can pursue for anything that you choose to pursue it over. all right. So, Kyle, look,
1: Woodall's he's getting out. You know? <laughs> he's decided to start kind of winding down, obviously. But but he, this that exchange really makes Jim Galloway's point, doesn't it? They've got to find a narrator since Americans are not reading this four, including members, some members of Congress, this 448 page report.
5: Well, if you do that dance in the end zone, the referees will throw a flag on it. So I don't even really <laughs> understand the the point he was trying to make there. Um, I think, you know, to Woodall's defense, though, he is not... Dictating House Democrat strategy on impeachment, and the president is of his party, and so I can see why he's not super engaged on the issue. But I, I really didn't actually understand the point he was trying to Andy, make. he's not running for re-election; he doesn't have to do his homework.
4: Yeah, that <laughs> right. I, you know, I will. And, and he definitely doesn't need to go on MSNBC where are going, <laughs> where that's going to happen every time. Um, I was kind of surprised. I wasn't
1: quite sure what that booking was all about. Actually, yeah. Why bother, <laughs> Terry?
2: No, that's a that's a very good point. I I listened to it and I thought well bless his heart why is he doing this <laughs> <laughs> this is
4: particularly yeah. cuz he's not there are those you know for whom the most dangerous place in Washington is between them and a TV camera yeah and, and he's never been and he's like not that person so yeah. it is interesting that he chose to to go on that it, it's you know you would you would imagine he'd be more comfortable in the in the comfy confines of Fox News
1: to give him some credit, if you were to go back and listen to the, or watch the entire interview, he does talk about bipartisanship. He does talk about the fact that he, he, he's uh, had it with the nasty tone of politics in Washington. So, I mean, this was not a great moment within an interview in which he talked a lot about trying to get things accomplished, not just get involved in the uh, day-to-day shiny object uh, fight, although I think you'd have a hard time... Uh, suggesting the Mueller report is
4: a shiny object distraction. Thank you for making that clarification, Bill. That, that's actually hugely important. And I, So I tip my hat to Rob for trying to make those points and going into what may be seen as enemy territory to make the point about the need to move beyond the toxicity. I like that.
1: All right, well, let's keep talking about impeachment uh, because it's becoming, Terry, uh, uh, increasingly important in terms of how candidates in the 2020 election cycle are uh looking at how they want to stand on this issue so right up your way uh sixth district congressman lucy mcbath had a town meeting um on over the weekend saturday i think and she uh was pushed she talked a lot about bipartisanship i'm working to get things done that sounds great but she had people constituents at that town meeting pressing her on why she has not come out yet supporting the impeachment of President Trump, she is acknowledged in her time, she did say, look, I've read the report, I've seen a lot of behavior that I think is questionable, but let's watch it unfold. I- I'm wondering how tenable that position is going to be, not just for a Democratic incumbent like Macbeth in a, in a district that's a swing district, but for a lot of Democrats across incumbents across the country.
2: I think it's a tricky balance that you have to take. You have to know your district, and I think that Congresswoman McBath truly does know her district. I think that it's important to remember, too, the context in which this meeting took place. And it's a town hall meeting. Some folks call them listening sessions because that's truly what they are. I mean, you are there. You're going into your district, and you're trying to take the pulse of your district. You're trying to determine what are the issues that are the most pressing for your constituency. And I think that then you can, as a policymaker, as a legislator, you can then take that information with you all of those facts, all the data, all the anecdotal information, all of those one on one conversations you've had with your constituents. You can then take that back with you to Washington and use that to determine how you focus on how you focus your policy, how you form your policy approach. And I think that this town hall meeting definitely gave her some direction in that regard.
1: Jim, it's not as if she's, it's not as if Democrats in that district. Are going to have somebody else to vote for if she doesn't go along with you? No, engagement. no. And this is
3: but- this is this is where it's it, it's interesting. In, the, in in the jolt this morning, uh, what we did was we we, we kind of contrasted uh, Macbeth and and Teresa Tomlinson, yeah. who's in, in a U.S. Senate race. Okay, Tomlinson is is the first only announced candidate uh, Democrat running against David Perdue at this point, but she's not likely to be the only one. Her her object is to get out of the Democratic primary. So she so so so. When she's talking pretty forthrightly about the need to impeach, then she's she's talking to 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 the people who are likely going to decide her future. McBath, on the other hand, like you said, she has no opposition uh, that, that's that's going to rise up in a in a, in a democratic part party uh, uh, primary, and she has she's she's running in a district that just look it, it has a GOP legacy, it has a Republican legacy,
4: and I think you I, I think you have to be careful because of that. Yeah, um, she's in a tricky she's in a tricky vice here because. What she is doing, this talk of bipartisanship, I want to be the the person who passes the most bills with Republicans uh, as a Democrat. That stuff is the way you used to do things in this country. You're in a swing district, and so you talked about bipartisanship. I don't know, and this breaks my heart, but I don't know that that works anymore because there's so little independent swing voters these days. It's all about base turnout. And so from that strategy, from that point of view, what McBath needs to do is to push for impeachment to rev up that base of folks who came up to see her in Dunwoody over the weekend. That's one theory, one way to look at it. So we'll see if her I'm bipartisan strategy is something that can still work.
2: Well, it's tricky because I think you're right. I think you know she, you've got she has her base. She has the the army of, of people, mostly women, I'll add, all, that went out and knocked on doors for her. They were a ground army in getting her elected. And I think that she has to be careful not to diminish that support and to diminish the veracity of their desire to see impeachment. I think, on the other hand, I, I think I think she I think it's right to say that most people do want bipartisanship. I think most normal voting people, most people who vote in general elections and who vote in midterms they want to see people try to work together i think most people are tired of the the fighting i think they're tired of the unkindness i think they are ready i think they do like seeing people try to work so, together
1: kyle let me just uh, quote uh, from both tomlinson and mcbath uh, galloway's already talked about the contrast but let's share it with our listeners um mcbath said in the town meeting, looking at the Mueller report, there's no doubt in my mind there's been obstructive behavior in concealing the truth. She talks about the fact the process takes time to play out. And then she says, I'm angry and I'm upset. At the end of the day, let the chips fall where they may. If it comes to impeachment inquiries, you can trust that your representatives will do the job. Tomlinson, on the other hand, uh, said told this to the flagpole. The fact of the matter is you are not up there to get reelected, she told a group of Athens Democrats over breakfast on Saturday. You're up there to lead. We have to go through the process. If the Senate votes to acquit, they vote to acquit. And, and there played out exactly the way uh, Jim described it is uh, the difference between somebody running in a, prim- in, in a primary uh, at, and eventually will have a Republican opponent and, and a Lucy McBath. Yeah.
5: Yeah, and I think you could actually maybe draw a line between these two positions about how this might progress. McBath, as a member of the Judiciary Committee, is going to be taking Mm -hmm. her cues from Nadler in this document fight that we started the show with. And I think the place that Democrats may want to be as this progresses is if the evidence piles up against President Trump, they can continue to say, oh, we want to go by the process, we want to see it through, and then sort of reluctantly backpedal into impeachment and talk about impeachment as a duty like theresa tomlinson does based on the evidence that they find but because of the narrative issue that we've been talking about they don't it's harder to make that duty argument right now yeah it's
3: um uh i I tell you one thing uh, on on the presidential level i mean we've had we've had uh, all these presidential candidates weigh in on on the topic uh but i don't think i've heard biden on this no
1: well he's been very cautious very so very far. very
3: cautious and and you know it's it's i, I hate to say it, but i think he and lucy mcbath are in in, 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 a, in a way are in the same box they are that that, that their 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 appeal is to the same november constituency yeah.
1: interesting
5: but um, well, i think biden has said that he would like to pursue impeachment by another way which is the election the election exactly um Which is the most – thank you, Kyle. That is the most rational – and I'm not
4: here to give the Democrats advice on But, but that – I mean, we're this close to it. Let the voters decide next year. Right.
2: That's like when people talk to me about term limits. And it's, well, you can term limit your elected officials every two years.
4: I yeah. have, you know what? Thank you, Terry. I just
1: said that we were in Cartersville and somebody brought up term limits uh, after we were done taping our show up there. And I, and I said, You do have term limits already. You vote the bum out. <laughs> you know?
4: yeah.
2: yeah, that's well, how it works. <laughs>
4: And look, I mean, and Jim has covered the General Assembly for 30 years, maybe? Uh, maybe a little more. A little more. <laughs> <Maybe. laughs> Niget, you have two. Terry, you, you serve there. You know, I'm just a fly on the wall who um, uh, who just observes from time to time. But it would, term limits would be terrible if we lost the institutional knowledge of people like Jack Hill, the Appropriations Committee chairman in the Senate, or Terry England in the House. They know things that we need people to know to lead our state.
3: You know, uh, uh Uh, Bill, uh, in Cartersville, we had Julianne Thompson on with us, and she made this excellent point that if you term limit your legislators, whether it's in the state government or in the federal government, you're, you're in effect, ceding power to a bureaucracy that you do not control. And lobbyists. And lobbyists.
2: That's right. I feel like if we did have a term limit bill, it would need to be accompanied by a fiscal note.
1: Yeah. By the, by the <laughs> way, when I said vote the bum out, I wasn't referring to anyone specifically. I meant just in general. If you don't like whoever it is, vote against that person. Uh, let me just make one last point. Not get us back to where we were uh, about the fact that there are Democrats running uh, for reelection who, like Macbeth, who are in a tricky position. And when it comes to impeachment, Jim, I don't I haven't surveyed the landscape in terms of how many Democratic incumbents are facing challenges across the country. Something I'd really like to spend some time uh, looking at. I haven't done it yet. But it strikes me that assuming there are going to be some contested incumbents on the Democratic side, that perhaps this D triple C rule that we've talked about a few times accrues to their benefit the the rule which says if you are a consultant working for a challenger to a democratic incumbent where you're no longer getting business from the we're blackballing you oh i hadn't even thought of, about that in the context of impeachment
3: but but it does take the pressure off say for instance david scott here in, in exactly, georgia
1: exactly where where you've uh, where where our friend michael owens is uh, uh running against him all right let's do this let's get a break in um while we have a chance here, we've got a lot more to talk about on Political Rewind today, including I do want to talk about the presidential candidates on the Democratic side who are supporting impeachment. Those who aren't will
4: do all that and more when we come back. Financial contributions from listeners like you are not the only gifts that keep GPB on the air. In fact, many listeners have already chosen to donate a used vehicle to GPB. We'll pick up your vehicle for free and send you the paperwork for your taxes. Get started today. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or go to gpb.org slash cars. That's 877-GPB-1-CAR or gpb.org slash cars. And thanks.
0: A Justice Department report found Alabama's prisons have the highest homicide rate in the nation. One inmate in that system heard our coverage and wrote us a letter. He says inmates have never felt so unsafe. You
1: never just felt like our life being in danger the way it is today. Basically,
2: everybody incarcerated feels
0: in danger. A view from inside Alabama's prisons this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. 4
1: till 7 today on GPB and GPBNews.org. Jim Galloway, we uh, were talking a bit ago about, you were, about uh, Democratic presidential candidates who have taken a position on impeachment and those who haven't. By my count, we now have 11 of 23 candidates who have firmly come out and said they support. Uh, and this is the important thing. Uh, um, I, don't, I guess it was in the Lucy McBath statement. They support an impeachment inquiry. Right, and that's a very careful wording of of what they would like to see happen,
3: and it, and, it, and it kind of goes to uh, to uh, uh, Jerry Nadler's attempt to kind of create this this uh, this halfway mark between the full impeachment, but just to let let people know what his intentions might be or might not be. Uh, I guess it, what what the, the equivalent is a as an a candidate's exploratory committee
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. Terry, <laughs> you nodded when I said that there was a careful wording by Macbeth an impeachment inquiry
2: yes, words have meaning, and I think that impeachment inquiry inquiry is the perfect way to phrase that it can you can it's it's a good phrasing because you can take it however you want to hear it you can you can approach impeachment inquiry with whatever confirmation bias you happen to have.
1: Kyle, I wonder, though, if what we started out talking about, um, I, I don't think it's going to change the 11 Democratic presidential candidates who are pushing for impeachment, um, but it, you do have to wonder if uh, a, a document uh, drop by the Department of Justice, if there's a sense that they're more willing to work with the uh Judiciary Committee, the House Oversight Committee, any of the Democratic committees looking at uh, the president, whether that does, one of the arguments for starting the impeachment is that it gives the Democrats in Congress a lawful and legal framework to demand some of the documents that have been withheld, right?
5: Right, and I think that's a theory that needs to be tested, um, because I've read arguments on both sides. Exactly, that it would, um, you know, it would increase the pressure on the administration to cooperate, or it would decrease it. I think the other benefit for Democrats in an impeachment inquiry, we, we've talked a lot about the reasons why they may want to be more cautious. Um, ben LeBolt, who was the press secretary for Obama's reelection campaign in 2012, he wrote in the Atlantic about uh, Trump's campaign operation already getting underway, about ad spending that they've already done and that there isn't a unified message from Democrats because they are finding it out in the primary and that impeachment would be a good political tool for taking the megaphone from Trump and controlling some of the message. Um, so I think that is a consideration, but I don't think because we haven't moved forward, it's one that that House leadership uh, hasn't really bought into yet. You know,
4: <clears throat> you know with, with impeachment, it's... Uh I'm very interested about what Macbeth is saying, because I I do wonder about the politics of it. I'm not. I don't really have an answer, but I think one of the things that's insightful is you're not seeing her potential Republican opponents coming out and attacking what she said at her town hall meeting. You're not seeing them really position themselves either. You know, you got Brandon Beach, who's a state senator, trying to position himself to be the nominee. You've got the former incumbent, Karen Handel, sort of as the front runner there still. Neither is coming out and planning themselves down, showing how perilous this is on both sides in a swing district.
1: That's a really good point, Jim Galloway. Oh no, absolutely. And uh,
3: there's a who's the third? I cannot remember the name of the third candidate. Melissa,
4: list. somebody mm. maybe.
3: Uh, I'll, I'll I'll do a quick search. Green, Green, Green,
5: Green, Green, Martin? Martin. Marjorie Green. Green, Marjorie Green.
3: Green, thank Green. Thank you very, thir- thank you, for right. the, thank you, Kyle. Th- th- yeah. Th- yeah. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and and uh, she has not she has not weighed in on that that one either. But it, but you're absolutely right. I hadn't thought about that. And and uh, actually, you know, they've been very quiet on a number of fronts. They, they, we haven't heard uh, – we have, we have not heard from Handel or Beach uh, uh, after the Virginia Beach shooting of, of last week. Uh, we have not heard on impeachment. Uh, they've been very, very quiet as a matter of fact.
4: Yeah. 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 There's oh, no, go uh, ahead, Brian. On, on, on policy for both the Republicans and Democrats in the 6th congressional district, there are no big, clear winners. There are no straight shots. Terry? Well,
2: and I'm wondering, do you think that this may end up being to the benefit of the voters in the 6th District, that they they might be in store for a campaign that is not, not founded in whether or not to impeach, but actually in the issues that impact them in their district?
1: All right. Um, let, let, Terry, uh, I gave you fair warning before the show, so I'm not springing this on you. Uh, starting today, especially Democrats, because you're the ones that have a contested uh, race ahead of you... Uh, Have you picked a presidential candidate yet? Do you expect to have one soon? Are legislators beginning to get calls or uh, emails, messages saying, we'd love to have you on our side? What's happening on that front?
2: I'm not getting those emails, but I may not be one of the cool kids. I, <laughs>
4: <laughs> I'm <definitely am> not. <laughs> I yeah,
2: I, I was I was at um at camp or somewhere. Left. I was I've been out of town, but I missed when a lot of the the folks came through town. All the bees, the Biden, Beto, yeah. Booker and and um Buttigieg, Buttigieg, Buttigieg came through. I am following the the race, of course, closely, and I have the ones who intrigue me the most are Biden, Buttigieg, and Elizabeth Warren. And the reason why what they all have in common is that they're upbeat and they're optimistic. And I, as a voter, appreciate that. I think most people appreciate that. What I love about Elizabeth Warren is her specificity. I think that she, I, I just, I appreciate specificity. I appreciate data-driven policymaking. And I think that that is something that she is very, very good at. Uh, what I love about Buttigieg is he is used to be a mayor. And I, you know, I came up from the Smyrna City Council. I was on it for 10 years. I have such an affection for municipal government. And I think that mayors in this country and he's you know mayor of a mid-sized city you know, about hundred thousand people, and I think that mayors are underestimated in terms of how they understand the political process. Yeah, I, I love mayors. The the,
1: the issue becomes uh, on the show a week or so ago, we uh, looked at the offices from which winning and losing presidential candidates have come, and uh, very low on the list are senators. Senators mm-hmm. don't get elected president. We got a bunch of those running. Members of the House uh, don't get elected president very often. You know who has never been elected president? The mayor of a city. And that is so fascinating because
2: mayors are, you know, municipal government mayors, they are the ones who, you know, the buck stops with them when it comes to, you know, is the water that comes into your house safe when you flush your toilet? Does it go where it is supposed to go? And that's
3: why they're not elected, because they do too much stuff. (laughs) That's right. That's right. You make
2: make people mad.
4: And, And look, I, too... Am impressed with Mayor Pete, and I, I'm going to say Mayor Pete because the other is just too hard to say. Boot edge, boot edge. edge, edge. I know, but I talk funny. That's that's still hard. Okay. The the um, I am very impressed with him. His resume is stellar, mm-hmm. and I can imagine what a great candidate he's going to be when he's when he's in his fifties. And I'm saying that as somebody who's 44. I'm older than him, and I just don't feel like he crosses the preparation threshold. And look, you say senators aren't. Elected, well... That's what Barack Obama was, and he wasn't even a long-term senator. There is a pathway there. Oh sure, but, it's just it but, doesn't happen very say this, often. But I will say this: I will say this, and I, I am not a, an Obama hater like many Republicans are. Um, I can take him the good and the bad. But I will say the first two years he was in office, he was not prepared. Let, there were a lot of things that weren't done well because he did not have the experience he needed.
1: Let me let me be clear on something because Robert Jimison just sent me a, a text. Um, I'm talking about people who came directly from an office to the presidency and uh robert points out that calvin coolidge and andrew johnson had been mayors and had been has had been grover cleveland but nobody's come run as a right, mayor right and been elected mayor. president right hey um kyle let's while uh we had the candidates in town of course joe biden made his uh very what's the word dramatic uh meaningful uh Reversal? Uh, somewhat expected? Uh, yeah. <laughs> on the uh, Hyde Amendment. The Hyde Amendment, of course, has been in place for quite a long time. It uh, forbids federal funding uh, to agencies that actually uh, do abortions. And Biden's people had said as recently as early last week he still believed in the Hyde Amendment. Then, of course, on Thursday night here in Atlanta, he said circumstances have changed I no longer support the Hyde Amendment. And it just reminded us of how central Republicans have put the entire issue of abortion into the campaign at every level of the 2020 cycle. Yes?
5: Yeah, they have. And and this was actually, I think, the most interesting storyline to come out of all the candidates making their way through Atlanta. Um, because, you know, we're in a primary. All of these Democrats, particularly everyone, Um, who is below Biden in the polls, which is everybody, they are looking for a way to climb up and and get in front of him. Um, But when Biden did reverse himself, I was interested that activists didn't really say, "Okay, and this is a reason we can't have Biden. They were more self-congratulatory and congratulatory to other women's groups at persuading Biden to change his position. So I think to some extent we haven't even reached the part of the primary where they're really going at each other very hard. Um, I think that they wanted to put a marker down about unifying the Democratic Party around a view on abortion and abortion policy, including this Hyde Amendment. Terry,
1: um, it is true that we talked about this, Jim and I, briefly, the other day on the show. Republicans have been reluctant to go too far in pushing uh, against abortion. We have the 20 week uh, ban that was in effect when Nathan Deal was uh, governor. I think it happened while you were working for him, Brian. Um, But the new six week uh, 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 standard in Georgia, the Alabama outlawing of abortion almost entirely, virtually entirely. Have Republicans has this been a smart thing to go back to the days when abortion is a central issue in, in uh, our politics?
2: I don't think it is. No, especially when we had a poll that came out just a few days ago saying that what sixty five percent or beyond that but the majority of Americans do not want Roe to be overturned. So why are they leaning in and digging into this? I mean, it 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 it's I don't understand. I don't understand it as a political approach.
4: Brian. I'm glad Terry put it that way because I think for many of the Republicans supporting those laws, those bills, it's not a political approach. It's because they believe they're saving babies, and that is how the, they, they approach the issue. So it's not just about the next election. For some of those guys, it is good politics. That's popular in their district. In some of these middle ground districts, it is going to be more tricky. Terry's right. And you know, I, I do disagree somewhat with your premise of your question to Kyle earlier, though. I think Republican voters would tell you that a lot of this push is in reaction to what they saw as Democrats going too far in New York and Virginia. That mobilized the pro-life movement in a way that I've rarely seen happen. it It, it really energized them to go in the other direction. And there was a headline in The Washington Post this weekend. Biden figured out there's no middle ground on abortion. So what you're seeing there is both sides have gone to their corners. On this issue, in and uh, fairly, I think you would say extreme ways.
1: I I, I want to be careful. I I think it's fair to say that that say the New York law, as an example, uh, allows for later-term abortions than we had before. I as long as we're not going to get into this talking point, which I think is. Uh, misleading jim this notion that new york allows for live birth abortions which is offensive i think to many people on both sides of the uh, aisle what, and, it, I, and i didn't say that well, no, no i know yeah, you yeah, didn't yeah, right. but it's but, come up on this show before yeah and i just want to make sure we avoid that territory and, and what the laws in, in in virginia
3: new york does is, is gives a women and their doctors the final call
2: yes and this. these and these are and this is not a pregnancy where a woman has changed her mind. This is a pregnancy where something has gone terribly wrong. It is a tragic situation for these families.
1: I just I Jim, I just the reason I, I go back to this point is I, you and I both remember the days When Thomas B. Murphy, you know, we talk about Tom Murphy on this show every now and then uh, because he was such a ubiquitous presence in state government for almost 30 years and speaker for like, I think, 27, 28 28 of them. Um, And he was always, always as conservative as he was individually. He was a Democrat, but he was a very conservative Democrat. And there were people in his Democratic Party, the conservatives, who wanted to push for abortion restrictions. And Murphy always said, we this is not an issue to go. It's a bad issue to try to get involved with. Right, right. He didn't. I mean, I mean, look. If I don't think you're
3: going to find unanimity on this on, in, in either in, in either party. I mean, the the basic polling says seventy percent. I, I think, I, I, and I think an AJC poll in January showed that seventy percent of Georgians say uh, say they 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 want to preserve Roe v. Wade. But when you get down to specifics, that's when that's when you know when when does. You know, you have a certain a certain faction within the Republican Party that says life begins at, uh, at at conception, and then you progress out from there. You know, the problem is what are the implications of each of each belief? Because because, and I'm saying belief specifically. I'm not saying um, uh, define medical knowledge here. It's it's a it's it's a belief system. Uh, you know, there are, and I think I've said this before. If if life begins at conception. You have a whole lot of fertility clinics that are congressional districts in and
4: of themselves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. All right. Let's but none, uh... oh, none, no, none can vote. But the uh, you know go make that headline that there's no middle ground on abortion. And to, to Jim's point, there's no middle ground in in today's. Uh, polarized politics. Because, Terry, there could
1: be a middle ground on abortion. Isn't it true, yes, the polls say that, that people support the right of a woman to choose, but it doesn't mean that vast numbers of Americans don't agree that we ought to have some Restrictions on how abortion uh, is, is allowed, no, right?
2: that's right, and that's what the polling this past week demonstrates. I think the number is 77% of those polled say that the Supreme Court should uphold Roe. 26% want to see it, more restrictions to it. 21% want to see it expanded. And, you know, it, it's a very, like it's a, ve- I think that what we see, the only dialogue we're ha- having now is, like we've said, it's on these, these extremes, these extreme sides, it's, it is based on beliefs. It's not based on medical science. It's not based on facts in it, to a very large degree. It's not based on data. It's based on feelings and how people feel and what they feel about the beginning of life and what they believe about the beginning of life and what they believe about a woman and the right that she has to make this decision for herself. And I don't... I think it's gonna take a lot of work to get us to a point where we can start having some very productive discussion on how we actually approach this I mean I believe it should be approached as a healthcare care issue
1: well are you ever gonna that discussion has ended in Georgia it's now it's the courts that will right. have, the have that conversation not the people of the state alright let's do this we're running late on getting to our final break of the show when we come back uh, hey Kyle I'm gonna get you engaged uh, as the first uh, uh, person to answer this question when we come back from the break Has Stacey Abrams become the kingmaker in Democratic presidential politics? You're listening to Political Rewind.
2: My name is Rana Charles. I am Director of Marketing and Communications at Morehouse School of Medicine and Morehouse Healthcare right here in the Atlanta community. It's an historically black college and university with a focus on healthcare research and community outreach that focuses on underserved communities. Morehouse School of Medicine and Morehouse Healthcare underwrite with GPB because we feel like we can reach people where they are.
0: To find out more about becoming a corporate sponsor, email sponsorship at gpb.org. On the next Fresh Air... There is nothing that I won't do to defend
3: what's mine. Damian Lewis plays a ruthless hedge fund owner in Showtime's Billions. He also played a Marine sergeant in the series Homeland, King Henry VIII in Wolf Hall, and Army Major Richard Winters in the HBO series Band of Brothers. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 here on GPB, and you can listen online at gpbnews.org.
1: Welcome back to Political Rewind. Hey, Kyle Hayes, uh, up there in NPR in Washington. So while they were in town last week, Pete Buttigieg and Beto O'Rourke met with Stacey Abrams. They both came out of their meetings and emphasized how voter suppression and voting rights are important. uh, And we need to focus on them in a bigger way. Certainly, Cory Booker came down and campaigned for her. When she was running for governor, Joe Biden met with her some time ago. Has uh, Stacey Abrams positioned herself at least before she unless she decides to run for president as the king or queen maker, given that we have a number of uh, women in this race?
5: I think she is starting to position herself as that. I, I think, you know, what we've seen out of the press on all of these meetings is that she is always bringing up the issue of voting rights um, in these discussions. And so I think probably what she's doing right now is saying, you know, whoever the candidate is going to be, we want voting rights to be an important issue. It was the top issue in H.R. 1, the big, the Democrats' big first legislative push in the Congress. Um, and I think she wants to keep that as the top issue. But then once, you know, If she doesn't run herself and once she decides to make an endorsement, that I think is going to be a political earthquake when she, you know, gets behind the podium and makes that announcement. Brian? You know, I
4: continue to be absolutely... uh, awed by Stacey Abrams's ability to not win the big election she was involved in and still be so relevant, not just in our state, but, but nationally. I tell you one thing that I am I think where her voice can be biggest, I, I don't buy it into this hype that people in, in New Hampshire, or Iowa, are going to care about what Stacey Abrams says. I think she can be hugely decisive for a candidate campaigning in Georgia. And we are an important trove of votes for Democrats today. We um, And we're going to be a highly important state in the general election under any circumstances. Dems are going to target this. Republicans are going to have to pour in resources here in a way that they never have before to make sure that that Trump... Comes out with a five-point victory and helps lift David Perdue over the top. Well, and that's
3: the point. That's the point. It's not just the presidential contest. If Democrats are going to take control of, of the Senate in twenty twenty, they're going to have to they're going to have to walk through Georgia with that. Absolutely. And, 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 and that's where I think Stacey Abrams is important. Is uh, importance is uh, you know Bill, I would say that you know look if you, if you cross the Savannah River into <laughs> South Carolina. Uh, you're not going to see anybody more influential among Democrats than
1: Jim Clyburn. Absolutely. And that's not, yeah. going, to right, right, that's, that's right. not going to change. right. That's not going to change. That's right. Right. Okay. Um, so.
4: Uh, but, I, I, but I will say this, Bill. Um, you know, was, uh, Terry's mentioned some polling recently. Um, Abrams's polling numbers here are going down as Kemp's are going up. I think that there's some of this has been overplaying its hand and it's hurting back home.
1: Well. To the best of my knowledge, it's been some time since the AJC polled some time ago on that, and and her numbers had gone down a, a bit in terms of her approval rating. But I don't think there's been anything much more recent than a couple months ago, is I'm there? I'm
4: citing the, the AJC poll that was the last one out.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, and, it's, and she, she
1: is a... Firm. But you're right. But that's the most recent one. Yeah.
2: No, she is a formidable voice. She has a very high profile nationally. I don't know if we have any in recent memory gubernatorial candidates in Georgia who have had such a high national profile and have been able to maintain it. She is a little bit of an E. F. Hutton, in that when she talks, people listen. And I think that that's why it's important. These candidates find that it, they believe that it's an important thing to meet with her and to talk with her because she has a very high. She's very visible. She has a high profile. She has an extremely formidable ability to get out the vote and i think that that is something that all of these candidates are looking for
3: uh, yeah and and into your point uh, terry i think i think it's very issue specific i mean i mean you you are and but but voting for democrats in in the next say t- 10 15 20 years that is going to be the issue it, it is it is going to be getting getting their followers their demographic uh, shift on, onto the voting rolls. That is that is the top issue, I think.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've just got time for a couple more uh, items. And Jim, uh, it, you know, we've now got, uh, finally, the House and Senate voting in favor of releasing the emergency release, relief money that so many states, including, obviously, Georgia, needs uh, as a result of natural disasters. And uh, the president signed the bill late last week. Your colleague Greg Bluestein went down to South Georgia with uh, Governor Kemp on Friday. They did a little victory tour. Sonny Perdue was actually there. His cousin David Perdue Mm -hmm. was there. Um, But it turns out we're not quite sure how quickly these funds are gonna get to the farmers who need it or in what form? There's apparently still some maneuvering that has to go on. The money will get there, but we don't know when. Yeah, will it get there before
3: before the next uh, the next planning season? Yeah, and yeah. we don't we don't know that. And I thought it was uh, quite uh, significant that you saw that you saw David Purdue uh, at that at that meeting over in Do Run down in South Georgia. Uh, you saw Kemp there. You saw Sonny Purdue. You saw Gary Black, yep. the 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 state agricultural commission. This 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 question of aid to to South Georgia farmers that has been languishing since last October, uh, I think you know it could
1: it could it could uh, depress some numbers for Republicans come uh, come next year. Going to be interesting to watch how that unfolds. I I do wonder if um, when you see the ninety percent approval rating for the president in the Republican Party, um, whether or not those farmers. Who, who have become Republicans certainly over the decades now. I wonder if they feel they have anywhere else to go but to Donald that's, Trump, that's even if exactly they're right. upset. Well, well, yes,
3: yes, but they also can stay home. And, True. And, right. those, and, True. That, and those, that 87% vote that Brian Kemp was getting out of certain counties in, down in South Georgia, you know, that could drop to 78% to 75%. And that does matter when it's offset against uh, Metro Atlanta. Kyle,
1: David Perdue is now proposing that there we should never get into this situation again. Of course, Perdue is the guy who praise President Trump for rescuing us from this situation, despite the fact that both he and the Democrats were at loggerheads mutually over the issue of funds for Puerto Rico, which held this thing up for so long. And now Purdue is saying we should take this kind of relief funding out of politics, out of appropriations, have a contingency fund that will, uh, we can dip into whenever we have this uh, problem again. It doesn't seem like a bad idea at all.
5: No, it doesn't seem like a bad idea at first glance, but I think my concern would be that then if you set aside this contingency fund, do you have some hesitation to go over that amount? Because, um, you know, I think a lot of uh, climate scientists will tell you that natural disasters like these may become more common because of climate change. And so budgeting for them will be a challenge. So setting aside some shouldn't mean that you don't step up when you need more.
1: Terry, the uh, the problem, of course, is that politics it it, it the, the reason that might not be a bad idea is we've never had Congress and the White House at odds over whether emergency funding for parts of the country stricken by natural disasters should be released.
2: No, we haven't. I grew up on the Gulf Coast, and this is an issue that is i've I've seen many hurricanes, and I know that we're going to see a lot more hurricanes. And while, I, I think it's you know, it's true. We shouldn't have this happen again. We have to anticipate that there are going to be more natural disasters like this. I think that implicit in that acknowledgement is is the understanding that climate change is going to be a part of it also. That might make this a more political discussion as to do we have a contingency fund. I don't think it's a bad idea either, but I do think, like Kyle said, we need to be open to what happens when the scale of a disaster exceeds what's in that contingency fund.
1: All right. Well, let's see how quickly these uh, monies get released uh, to uh, South Georgia. Uh, That's it. We're out of time for Political Rewind today. Uh, Kyle Hayes, thank you so much for uh, being with us out of NPR in Washington. Do you have another show you're working on, Kyle, by the way, so we can uh, plug that?
5: Yeah, but probably in a couple of weeks. I'm traveling this week, oh, so we'll so have something you, in a few oh, weeks. Oh,
1: okay. So we don't want to... Okay, sounds good. We'll look for Peach Pod. We'll subscribe to it. Uh, Brian Robinson, thank you. Thank you for having you're me. You're doing a little work with Renee Unterman. You're not her official consultant, but you're, she's launched your campaign for 7th District, right?
4: Yeah. She, she had a great uh, kickoff event uh, last week, and she's just somebody I've known a long time through her work in the Senate and just... Um, a lot of my friends are helping, so I wanted to help too. It's
1: going to be interesting to see what happens in that election up in the seventh district. Uh, we'll make sure not to invite you on the show when we're talking about that race. Now that you—that's fair.
4: A... <laughs> right. but, uh, nationally, people will, people will be watching that race.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Terry. And it's been a real pleasure Thank having you. you back. Come back again, more. I would often. love to. Okay, that sounds great, Galloway. See you again for Friday's Political Rewind. You know one of these we'll talk about this week? Your boss, Kevin Riley, is testifying in Congress tomorrow. Big yeah. deal.
3: It's a big deal. I'll let him speak for himself,
1: though. <laughs> All right. That's it for us. We're out of time here on Political Rewind today. I'm Bill Niggett. We're back here tomorrow at 2. I hope you're with us when we're back.